series called Living Faithfully in a Chaotic World. Living Faithfully in a Chaotic World. And we've been looking uh, last week at Psalm 91, and today we'll finish that off, hopefully. And uh, we're all familiar when you buy a new appliance, you buy a washer, a dryer, a stove, a refrigerator. Um, with that item, when you purchase it, usually you get a manufacturer's warranty, right? You get something that the manufacturer says, okay, for this long, it could be 30 years, it could be five years, depending on what you buy, um, will cover the cost of the normal anything, anything that, you know, goes wrong in our workmanship or anything like that. But, you know, normal wear and tear, that doesn't, that's not covered. But if the compressor goes out or something happens, um, you'll be covered under this warranty. Now, the company can't afford really to do any more than that and stay in business. They couldn't say, well, you have a lifetime warranty on your refrigerator. Why? Because you'd never have to buy another refrigerator, right? So that would be bad for business. <laughs> so they usually give you a time period. Or even with cars, you've seen the commercials, you know, on, on uh, television probably for the, the car maintenance insurance. You know, these people, yeah, I, I saved $20,000, $10,000 because I bought this insurance and extended the warranty on my car. I thought, well, you know what? If you bought a car and you had to spend $20,000 on maintenance, you got a problem. But anyway, um, the important thing to remember is this. God's protection, God's oversight has no such limitations. It, it covers more than we expect. Um, that means that, you know what? You shouldn't lose heart. We shouldn't lose heart when we come to the end of our resources or when there's a problem that's facing us that seems large on the horizon. Because God can overcome anything. It, he can overcome what may appear to be impossible to us. But God can do it. And because he can do it, that must mean he has the abilities to exceed anything that we can put together, anything that we can apply, or really even anything that we can um, comprehend in our own minds. So no matter what you're facing today, it doesn't matter what it might be. I want you to know that God is able and willing, by the way, to offer that protection. Um, so let's stand as we read this psalm, and I'll read it for you, and you can follow along in honor of God's word. You can stand, and then we will uh, pray and then get into the study. Verse 1, Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God I in whom I trust. Verse 3. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions or feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand. 
but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder and the snake, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot because he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the living God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you this morning that you offer to us divine protective, perfect protection. And Father, we pray that you would remind us of that in the days in which we live. And so, Father, we pray today that you would apply these truths to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been in this series for, this is the fourth week. And the first week, we looked at our mindset, taking every thought captive out of Philippians chapter 4. Secondly, the second week, we said our provision, that he is able, and we looked at Ephesians 3. And then last week, we began in Psalm 91, and we began to look at our protection, the promise of God's protection. And so we want to finish this up today, hopefully. But last week, we saw the safest place, the most secure place in the world, according to God's word, is what? Is a place of committed trust in God. That's where the perfect protection is found. When a believer trusts in God who keeps his people in his unbreakable care who protects them from harm, the Bible says, who surrounds them with irrevocable promises and ensures that they are fully and completely secure. And we talked about this psalm, and we said, you know, it speaks of the protection of God, and it uses different voices. And last week we looked at the, the first couple lines there, and it's almost like an introduction to the psalmist's sermon, which is the middle part of this psalm. And you see, at the very beginning there, he says, I, I. It's over and over repeated pronouns. And then the middle section from verses 3 down to basically verse 13, it's written in direct address. He uses the, the pronoun you, and we'll be looking at that section today. And then in the final section, verses 14 to 16, it's almost like God takes over the psalm and he's speaking himself. And so this is a psalm, beloved, for saints. <laughs> this is a psalm for saints in trouble. That's what this is for. This psalm intends to instill in us greater faith, a robust mentality that knows as its object God himself. And we understand that he's absolutely trustworthy. And we can trust 
God because he's worthy of our confidence, because he provides ultimate security and this perfect protection. And so last week we looked at verses 1 and 2, and we noticed there that the protection of God is exclusive. Does God protect everyone? No, he does not. It's exclusive. It benefits those, verse 1 says in verse 9, those who what? Those who dwell in him. Those who make their abode in him. Those who set up house with God. And we looked at the different titles of God. Elion, the Most High, which is the most common Hebrew. Then we said El Shaddai, the Almighty, he mentions there. And then Lord, or Yahweh, it's God's covenant name that he revealed to his people. When God says, I am. I didn't have a beginning, I just am. (laughs) And then the last one, he says, my God, Elohim. It's the most basic word for God. But it's personal. The psalmist says, this is my God. And then he uses four metaphors that we kind of looked at. And quickly, we talked about the first one there, shelter. He makes his home in the shelter of the Most High. This is where you lay your head at night. This is where you sleep. But then he says, he also sees his home lodging in the shadow of El Shaddai. And this presents to us kind of a, the first shelter is more of a home. This is more of a temporary place. A place where Maybe you're traveling and you stay at. This isn't spoken. A shadow is not permanent, is it? And so by using both of these words, both of these terms, he's speaking of the grace of God. This person lives in the presence of God, not because he's natively a family member, but because he's been welcomed there, even as an outsider who's been brought into the family. We're adopted into God's family. We aren't just born into God's family. And then he uses the term refuge. This is a secure place. It's the way God, the Bible uses to describe God over and over again. The Lord, my God, in whom I take refuge. My refuge, he he mentions this over and over in the Psalms. But he also says, my stronghold. And this is kind of a fortress, an impenetrable defense. It's a walled city, a place of military strength and might. This is how the psalmist describes his God. This isn't somebody else's God. This is his God. And so last week, if you had to sum it up, basically we would say divine protection is not for everyone. (laughs) Not everybody gets, is entitled to divine protection. Perhaps not even for all who claim to be God's people. Do they have the benefit of divine protection? Charles Spurgeon said this, Every child of God looks toward the secret place. Yet all do not dwell there. They run to it at times and enjoy occasional approaches, but they do not habitually reside in his presence. 
Now he's speaking of those who name the name of Christ. See, God's protection is for those who remain in God's presence, who have a close and abiding relationship with him. You should ask yourself this morning, which description fits you? Spurgeons? You kind of visit God once in a while? Or the psalmist? You dwell with him continually. See, if you want the kind of protection that this psalm describes, you must make God's place your place. So where are you dwelling? Do you have a close relationship with him? Do you have a deep attachment to him? Is he the the chief object of your love and your life? Inevitably, we'll all encounter some form of circumstances that are either difficult in life or possibly even dangerous. Situations beyond your own control, whether they're financial, emotional, physical. The psalmist says that if you meet these criteria, if you you dwell where God dwells, if you have a close relationship with him, a deep attachment to him, then you can expect the kind of protection that's described here. It's a wonderful promise. Well, what's this protection like? The psalmist continues here in verse 3. He uses figurative speech. And he compares this divine protection to more familiar things that back then they would be familiar with. Today we may not be, but they were back then. In verses 3 and 4, if you just look at that, what does he uses a mother's kind of a bird protecting its young. We have birds over here by the fellowship hall. They drive our little cameras crazy, you know. And I think we drive them crazy with the cameras too. They're always pecking at them, setting off the alarm. But see, they're, what are they doing? They're protecting their little nest over there. And what's he saying in verses 3 and 4? He's saying that's the illustration here. Verses 4 and 6, he compares it to the protection of a shield offered by a soldier in battle. And after you read these verses a couple times, it's kind of interesting because did you notice the one danger listed in both of these illustrations in verses 3 to 6? What's common to verses 3 and 6? Pestilence. See that there? Contagious disease. (laughs) Boy, that relates to us today, doesn't it? See, neither a bird nor a shield, a soldier's shield, neither one of those is going to protect you against a pestilence. Now, it's kind of funny because we live in a day and age where we think that a piece of paper across our lips will protect us from this deadly virus, they say. And if it was as deadly as they claim it to be, I'm not saying it's not real, I'm not saying that it's not deadly for some, but if it was as deadly as they claim it to be, I don't think you would ever take your mask off. I wouldn't. I'd never take it off. And yet, we take it off all the time. You walk into a restaurant, 
with the mask on. And then you sit down at the table and you take it off. And then you smack your lips and eat food. It's kind of silly. But what he's saying here is, look, you know, a bird, just like they protect their young, or a a guard, a shield, is not going to protect you from something like this. So either the psalmist doesn't know what he's talking about, or he's saying, number two, our second point here today, that God's protection is extensive. In other words, it covers more than one expects. Divine protection extends beyond what he's describing here. God does more for his people than a bird can do for its young or a shield can do for a soldier. He wants us to know that. His protection does not have the limitations that restrict familiar natural defense measures. It goes beyond that. It's not like the limited warranty. I have a feeling that maybe there's some here this morning who has wavered in their trust of God. Maybe there's been a time when you, your trust of the Lord has been low and your faith has been very, very, very small. Well, I, I want to remind you of the, of the words of Jesus Christ. Jesus reminds us in the Gospels that even that mustard seed kind of faith just a little. He says it's, it's, it's sufficient. But God wants you to grow in your faith. He wants you to add to your faith. So in verses 3 through 13, this song, psalm really transitions, you might say, into a sermon. He, remember last week he talked about his testimony, right? I will say to the Lord, he who dwells, in the, and he's saying he's the one who's doing it. He's giving his testimony that God can be trusted. And now he's moving into a transition where he says, you know what, don't just trust me. I want you to know why. And so he preaches on protection, the protection of the Most High, and he moves the focus of the psalm away from himself the writer, his own testimony, and he says, it's not just for me. I want every listener, I want everyone who reads this psalm to understand that these promises are for them as well, if their trust is in God, if they're dwelling in the Lord Most High. And you notice here, he, he uses the singular pronoun you throughout these verses. I'll just read it now, reread it for emphasis' sake, and you can follow along. Verse 3 For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by the day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, 
but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Verse 12, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And then lastly, verse 13, he says, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample under foot. My question to you is, who is he talking to? He's talking to you. It's very clear. The Bible is talking to you right now. And it wants us to know what kind of promises we ought to be holding on to. What kind of protection that you need to be mindful that you have. It it wants to embolden, it wants to strengthen and grow your faith so that when that troubling time comes, when adversity surrounds you, you feel safe in the arms of God. You feel safe under the watchful eye of God himself. That's the kind of bold, robust faith that even our Lord had while he was here on earth. And it's the kind of faith that all who follow Christ ought to share in. And there's a lot of confusion about this kind of faith today, isn't there? Just turn on your TV. You have TV preachers telling you all kinds about faith, faith, name it and claim it. All this positive thinking stuff. Just assert something to be true and it will be. Your words have power. Is that what this psalm is about? Is this what the psalmist is talking about? I don't think so. So let's look at God's protection being extensive. If you think you'll find them far more bold than maybe you're even comfortable with personally when he begins to describe this. Verse 3 says, he will rescue you from the trapper's snare and from the devastating epidemic. Two places to be delivered from here, or saved from, if you will. The first one, he says, is the trapper's snare. It's a common phrase used throughout the Psalms. A snare or a trap is simply what? A hunter's device to capture an animal. You can watch it on Mountain Men or any of those shows. You know, they're all trappers, right? It's a metaphor. He's not saying you're hunted like an animal. Maybe except unless you are. The reason I say that, Psalm 140, listen to what the psalmist says here, 140 verses 1 to 5. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Sounds like somebody's hunting him. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They make their tongues sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asp. 
4. Guard me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have planned to trip up my feet. The arrogant have hidden a trap for me. There's the word. And with cords they have spread a net beside the way. They have set snares for me. See, this is what's being pictured here in verse 3. Evil men, fowlers, schemes, plots against you. And God says, you know what? I'm going to rescue you from those who are determined to trip you up, to trap you, to trick you, to beguile you. The other thing to be rescued from, according to verse 3, it says a devastating epidemic, deadly pestilence. It's a phrase used throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus, right, ladies? You guys, you ladies are going through Exodus? Or the curses of Leviticus or Deuteronomy. It speaks of a, of a wasting disease that God sends as judgment on evildoers. One way to understand this is that God promises that if you trust in him, if you put your trust solely in him, you will not be subject to God's judgments. And trust me, God's judgments are coming. Like the plagues that hit Egypt. That's the same phrase. It's used for those who will not obey God. God will rescue you not only from the plots against you, but also, he says, I'll even rescue you from my own judgments that you, by the way, rightfully deserve. We all do, right? And then the most rich metaphor, verse 4, he talks about he will cover you with his pinions or feathers. A lot of us don't understand that word, pinions. It's a word for the, the leading edge of a wing or the edge of a, of, a, of a bird's feathers. It's a common phrase used to describe God. It's like bird-like or anthologically, I guess is the word that you use to describe it. It describes God over all the Psalms. God is described as using his wings to, what, cover us? Psalm 17, 8. Psalm 38, 7. Psalm 57, 1. Psalm 63, 7. It's, it's one of the favorite pictures of the ancient Psalm writers to describe God's protective care. And here is one of its most full expressions. By his feathers, he says, he will cover you. Under his wings, you will find refuge. The shadow that he referred to in verse 1, he will abide in the shadow of the Almighty, is probably the shadow of his wings. See, here his feathers and his wings are shown to us. Now, these aren't literal feathers and wings, right? We understand that, hopefully. 
This is figurative language, trying to break down God in a way that we could understand. But the Bible also says that God is what? God is spirit. He doesn't have literal arms. He doesn't have a physical body. So he certainly doesn't have feathers. It's a picture of God in a way that we can understand him. The unseen, omniscient, all-powerful, transcendent God has a heart of compassion, like a parental bird watching over its young and is committed to protect his own, even to cover them with his wings, to help them find shelter close to him. The same language is used in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, when he says to Israel, I bore you on what? Eagle wings and brought you to myself. This expresses the care and the concern that God has for us. It was describing their journey out of Egypt into the promised land. It was as if God was like an eagle protecting his young in the nest the entire time of their journey. The same language in Deuteronomy 32 or even on the lips of Jesus in Matthew 23, we see it. When he looks down at the unrepentant Jerusalem, Remember what he says? He's, he's weeping. The Lord is weeping over Jerusalem because they would not turn to him. And he expresses his heart and he says, How I long to gather you like a hen, a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. See, this is language the Bible uses to express the deep love and concern that God has for his people. It's an image of absolute protection from God for his people. But it seems kind of insufficient because, I don't know if you ever held a feather in your hand, but they're not the strongest thing, right? I mean, you snap it right away. A feather doesn't seem like a very protective thing. I don't think I'd, I'd want a, you know, a shield made of feathers if I was going to war. Give me something that's impenetrable. But there's more to this image in verse 4. He says he will, says after he says, under his wings you may seek refuge. Look at what it says. His faithfulness is a what? Shield and buckler. See, this is the big shield. This isn't a little handheld. This is something, you know, like a body armor kind of shield. It covers one or two people in war. It would cover you head to toe. You'd be impenetrable. He uses two words here. It's so big. Shield and buckler. Buckler is kind of like a, a shield that would surround you, even on the sides. It could be used as a point for an army to hide behind. We're talking about a big shield here. See, it's strengthened, it's fortified. This is armor that is of military grade. He encircles us with his truth. The psalmist simply says here, he finds God to be a refuge for him. 
like this parental bird. And he finds God's truth to be for him this massive protective covering, this force field, this shield all about him that nothing can penetrate. I mean, God's not just a bird. He's not just describing a bird here. He's, he's describing a bird with body armor. Okay, I mean, it's a pretty incredible bird. It's an incredible picture of God's ability to protect us. Drawn from pictures in life that we can understand. But it's more than just these little metaphors. It's the promises that start to unfold. Look at verse 5. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. An arrow that flies by day is something that could harm you physically. Hopefully you would agree with that. Today you would say somebody's carrying a gun. Probably, probably wouldn't have a bow and arrow. They would have a gun. That could harm you. That could do damage to you physically. But when he talks about the terror by night, that's something that doesn't necessarily, it can, but doesn't necessarily mean that it affects you physically, but it's more psychologically. That's what he's getting at here. It's an attack on your mind. The fearfulness or the terror that could come into your mind while you lay there at sleep at night. Darkness, evil thoughts. God promises that you will find refuge in him. You don't need to be afraid of those things. Verse 5, you have this wonderful protection. It's both from physical harm and from harm that could come and attack your mind or your spirit. You don't need to be afraid of either one of those if you're trusting in God. If his wings are covering you, if you have placed your faith, your trust in Christ Jesus, if God is your your refuge, your hiding place, then you don't need to fear physical harm. You don't need to fear emotional harm. You don't need to fear psychological harm or mental attack. Why? Because God says he will protect you. <clears throat> There's nothing that you have to be afraid of if God is your refuge, if he is your body shield, if he is your encircling shield of armor, providing you make your home in the shelter of the Most High, if you make your lodging place in the shadow of El Shaddai, if he is your, your refuge, your stronghold, your God in whom you trust, you have nothing to fear. Nothing. Physically, emotionally, from enemies. The list goes on and on. Look at verse 6. Nor the pestilence that stalks at night. In the darkness, it says. This is a, a disease that's covered in darkness. Now, this is not something that's human. This is something that's inhuman. A destruction or a scourge which destroys at noon. 
It's another kind of wasting disease word. He says, you don't need to worry about that. And verse 7 even points out to us, no matter what kind of devastation that is happening around you, that's the idea. You're in the middle of an all-out war. And he says there in verse 7, look, a thousand may fall at your side. I mean, people are dying all around you. And 10,000, he ups the ante (laughs) at your right hand. This is happening all around you. And what does he say? Verse 7, but it's not going to come near you. (laughs) It's not going to come near those who have their faith, their trust, placed in Christ, in God. God's protection, even when there is a massive slaughter, death is in the air everywhere. It surrounds you completely. He says he will protect you. He can protect you. And he promises to do so. Is that too much protection for you? He doesn't stop there. He just keeps going. Look at verse 8. He goes even further. He says, you will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. That's, that's a reminder to the reader that, you know what? No rebel person will escape God's judgment. You don't get a pass. But if you trust in God as your refuge, the Bible says, you will escape the judgment of God. Derek Kidner says this. He says, this little phrase assures us that nothing can touch God's servant but by God's leave. We are completely protected by God. And the promise of God's protection continues. Look at verse 9. This is really the center of the psalm. Poetically, the first word there, because, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Lord there is Yahweh. See, this is the psalm, really, the very heart. This is, this is the, the cry of faith that this psalmist wants us to see. You, O Lord, are my refuge, what he says. That's the message. See, the promises in this this part of the the psalm is really a sermon, and he really wants us to understand that this is directed at each one of you. Each listener that trusts in God as their refuge. Your refuge is in the Most High. If you have made your dwelling place, your shelter, then this is something that he promises to you. This isn't something that you wish you have done or you're thinking about doing. This is something you have done. It says, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. See, that's the kind of radical commitment 
that Jesus Christ expects from his followers. See, he doesn't give you the option, well, you know what, you can, you can follow me Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and, and, and of course on Sunday when you come to church you'll be following me, but um, you know, take the other days off. No. It's not that kind of a... It's, it's like when you join the military. You, you don't get to join the military and say, well, you know, I don't think I want to go to work today. No. I mean, unless you're on your deathbed, you're going to work. It doesn't even matter if you're sick. But you don't understand, I've been up... 20 hours. Who cares? Go, go to your post. That's the kind of commitment that Jesus Christ expects from his followers. See, I get so frustrated when I hear non-believers, oh, Christians, that's just a crutch. Give me a break. It's not a crutch. It's a commitment of humongous proportions. When you're saying, God, in you and you alone, I'm going to put my faith, my trust. It doesn't matter what thousands of people are dying around me. I'm still trusting in you, God. I'm still following you, Jesus. I'm not following you just for my best life now. I'm following you for all eternity. That's what he expects. Then he even gets bolder. Look at verse 10. He says, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague will come near your tent. In other words, you know what? You are completely under my sovereign protection. And nothing is going to happen in your life unless me, God, your creator, allows it to. Boy, that puts a spin on things, doesn't it? When things aren't going right in our lives, what do we do? God, why are you doing this to me? Why is this happening? As if we deserve anything more. We just need to say, yeah, praise the Lord. Give me the grace to get through this. I don't like this. This is a troubling time. I don't like this. But you know what? This is what God has for us. And we can either cower in fear and retreat, or we can step out boldly in faith and say, bring it on. What are you going to do next, God? What is your purpose in this? You think he doesn't have a purpose? He definitely has a purpose. Well, then we see, thirdly, God's protection is extraordinary. In in other words, it possesses this supernatural element. Look at verse 11. This is amazing. For he, God, will command his angels concerning you. As if the protection of God himself wasn't enough. If you're worried that I can't handle it, guess what? I have a lot of angels working for me. Not a problem. I'm going to command my angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Now remember, this is for those who have what? Put their faith, their trust, their dwelling places in God. It's not somebody who's out there living life on their own. They don't have these promises. Verse 12, on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. See, here we see God's protection is extraordinary. God himself protects you with his wings. He is your refuge. But guess what? All the 
attendees in heaven, all the angelic creatures who worship God for all eternity, they're also employed to watch over you and to guard you and keep you in all your ways. Now, the Bible says this is a common theme. This isn't just here in Psalm. You remember an angel protected Isaac when Abraham was about to sacrifice him? An angel protected the Israelites when Egyptian forces were about to destroy them. A host of angels protected Elisha when the army tried to capture him. The angel protected King Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem when the Assyrians Assyrians besieged them. An angel protected Daniel and his friends when the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar was going to execute them. Twelve legions of angels... Twelve legions of angels, that's about 144,000 angels, stood by, ready to protect Jesus when the soldiers came to arrest him. If he wanted to, he could have called on all those angels and just wiped everybody out. But he knew that wasn't God's plan. Furthermore, the psalmist says in verse 11 that the angels offer constant, comprehensive protection. His angels guard you in some ways, once in a while. No, it says in all your ways. They are able to deliver you from whatever kind of danger you may encounter in your life. Now, does this mean that You can always depend on angelic assistance no matter what your circumstances. Does that mean you can run out in the middle of a freeway in front of a bus? Hey, the angels are going to protect me. No. No. But the New Testament does affirm the truth. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? All those who are saved are being ministered to by angels. And he says here in verse 12, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. They will bear you up with their hands. That's not a normal word for hand in the Hebrew. It's a word that describes not just a hand, but it it describes the grip of a hand. So you're, it's basically saying you're in the firm grip of his angels. <laughs> there's no place of trouble. There's no diagnosis. There's no accident. There's no enemy. There's no harm that can be done to you if God is protecting you. And he promises you his perfect protection if you're trusting in him. His angels by hand deliver you personally. So that your foot does not crash into a stone. What's that? You won't even stub your toe. That's God's protection. But then we come down here to verse 13, 14. It really speaks of God's expansive protection. It includes all these benefits because he begins to look at creation. You know, he, he's looked at 
humans. He's looking at all this stuff, you know, psychologically that can bombard us. But now he says, let's look at cursed creation to go even further. I mean, did you ever think of it back in those days? They didn't have zoos. So whatever wild animals were out there, they were truly wild. They weren't contained. They weren't tame. And if you lived out in the wilderness, you had to deal with them. That's probably one of the scariest parts of the ancient world. They didn't have any zoos. And so he says in verse 13, you will tread on the lion. That's a word for a leopard or a panther. And the adder, a snake, deadly snake. And then he says the young lion has the... The, the language kind of figuratively includes a, a, a young lion that's going to pounce on you. It's not some old lion of the jungle. This is a young, hungry lion that's going to get you. Well, you're protected from them too. And the, the serpent you will trample underfoot. Even the most accursed of all animals, the snake from Genesis 3, remember, is shown to be no threat. Absolutely no threat to those who have God as their refuge. So he piles in all these animals and their names to show you that you're protected from everything. These claims, these promises are outrageous. And I I know what you're thinking. You're sitting there and you're thinking this. You know what, Pastor? I have stubbed my toe. I have stubbed my toe. And it hurt. Matter of fact, I've dealt with a lot worse. Some of you, life is hard. No doubt. Life is hard because you know what? In your life, you have suffered devastating losses of which I could never even relate to. And then you sit here this morning and you hear the pastor up there talking Psalm 91 promises. You're the world, the perfect protection of God. You have nothing to be afraid of. But you know what? You know, as you sit here this morning, you've been up nights scared to death. What's coming? You have seen the loss. You have suffered loss. You've been injured. You have been cut. You've got the phone call, the diagnosis. And everything else. And you wonder, where is this perfect protection you're talking about? Because I ain't feeling it. Because life just seems to get harder and harder and harder. So how can this be true? If what you're saying is true, why is life so hard? I mean, is God failing to keep his promises for me or what? Well, I'm here to tell you, God keeps all of his promises, every one of his promises. And this isn't talking about something in the future. I don't think we need to interpret this passage the way the devil does. What do you mean by that? You remember, don't you? Matthew 4. It was the devil himself who quoted verse 11. 
Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be what? To be tempted by Satan, to be tempted by the devil. And he tells him to make what? The stones some bread. He misquotes, he twists the scriptures. Look at that passage, Matthew 4, 11, 4 verses 1 to 11. Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Jesus, every time, answers Satan with what? With the word of God. He says, you're not going to pull this over off on me. What are, you, what are you thinking? Look at it, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written... Man shall not be lived by, lived by bread alone, but every word that comes out from the mouth of God. Have that, Satan. And then the devil takes him to the holy city, verse 5, stands him up on the pinnacle of the temple of Jerusalem and says, basically, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And what's he doing? He's quoting Psalm 91.11. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their Hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus comes right back at him again. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, Satan doesn't stop there. The devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give to you. Remember, he is what? The prince of the power of the air. All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Satan just said, I'm done with you, man. Get, get lost. Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Verse 11, and the devil left him, and behold, guess what? Angels came and were ministering to him. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, jump. See, Satan's been apparently watching the televangelists. <laughs> Or maybe the other way around. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I mean, there's some word of faith people. Oh, yeah, you can handle snakes. You can handle, you can do all this. That's crazy talk. That's not what the Bible's saying. You got apostolic powers. Just believe it to be true. <clears throat> Snake bite, you're dead. See, that's devil talk. That's not scripture. It's false confidence. It's a misunderstanding of the, the very heart of God's promises. It's not that God's promises are not true. As Jesus says to the devil, you know, he, he doesn't jump. He says, <laughs> on the other hand, it's been written. And he continues to answer him with the word of God. What's so ironic is that Satan himself quotes the promises of Psalm 91 to try to get Jesus to disobey his God. Isn't that amazing that Satan will not stop at anything? He wanted to thwart the mission of Christ so much. Hey, I'll even quote scripture. But Jesus doesn't fall for the trap, does he? But Jesus does know with all his heart that God will protect him, that God will care for him. Jesus himself was the ultimate example of one who is perfectly protected by God. Yet listen, what happens to Jesus? He suffers. He suffers tremendously. He's betrayed. He dies on a cross. 
How can both of these be true? Wait a minute, you're saying Jesus was protected, but he he still went to the cross? Well, the answer here is in verse 15, quickly. It says, when he calls to me, Psalm 91, verse 15, I will answer him. Then look at what it says. I will save him from the trouble. No. (laughs) It says, I will be with him. Guess what? In trouble. God never promised, Jesus never promised, that you will never have trouble. He's promising to you that nothing will happen to you, that he will not, in his sovereign care and protection, use, employ, orchestrate for your ultimate good and his glory. That's what he's promising. That's why we can believe Psalm 91 when it says, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. Well, if evil does befall you, guess what? God allowed it for a purpose. I mean, this is a message that Job himself must have rang true in his heart when he looked at the ten fresh graves of his children after they were wiped out. Can you imagine such devastation for one man to go through? But he understood these verses. Seems like this promise, it's not saying that nothing bad will ever happen to believers. That's, that's Satan's interpretation. That's the word of faith movement. Just name it and claim it. If you're sick, you're lacking in faith, brother. See, the devil wants us to think that God's promises have failed if he allows suffering into our lives, if he allows us to have a hard life. But like Job, we can say, I will worship the Lord because everything comes from his hand. Everything comes from his hand. You see, God will save us in our trouble, not out of our trouble. That's what verse 15 says. And that's what Jesus said in Luke 21, 16. He says, you will be delivered up by parents talking about his followers and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you, they will even put to death. You're going to suffer in my name. That's what he's saying. But then that very next verse, listen to what he says. You will be hated all for my name's sake. Verse 18. But not a hair on your head will perish. Okay, which is it, Jesus? Am I going to lose a couple of hairs? Or am I going to die? Are all my hairs protected, or am I going to die? It seems like a paradox. And this is the way life is. It's the sovereignty of God. God's will, in a a way, in our troubles, our trials, his perfect protection from his perspective is always there. It's not always based on our human perspective. And it's the faithful people of God who have put their faith or trust in Christ and in God who make him their refuge. We can't lose a single thing from our lives unless God allows it. We cannot suffer a moment apart from his perfect hand, from his sovereign, guiding, wonderful, protective influence. See, God is creating us. He's he's molding us. He's shaping us. He's transforming us. 
when we value worldly comfort over an experience of God's grace and his love and his holiness, trials, troubles often become the focus instead of God's perfect protective care through the trials. I mean, this verse basically says you can sit in the oncological ward of a hospital with chemo pumping into your body, poisoning you, knowing you're going to die. Lay there with absolute trust that you know what? God is protecting me. That's what this is saying. He's holding my hand as I go through this hard time. Just as much as when you're on vacation on the beach and you're reading a book and everything's good. And you're going, man, God is so good. He's protecting you. He's keeping you. He did the same thing with his son so that when Jesus suffered and he died, God knew what would bring the most glory to himself and the most good to his servant. And in dying, he would accomplish something unexpected from our perspective. In the crucifixion of the perfect son of man, we would find salvation for all eternity. you trust God, that's where you should always be. Well, in the last phrase here quickly, he, he basically, it's almost as if God is speaking himself. In verses 14 to 16 there. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him. I will show him my salvation. These are eight incredible blessings that God shows us. He will rescue us, speaks of deliverance. He will protect us, speaks of having a top security clearance. You have people all around you protecting us. All his angels. See, this is God's blessing to us. But when you get down to the last four, I will rescue him and honor him. and I will satisfy him. I will show him my salvation. I mean, we can see where he can do the first four there. But these last four, you've got to read the book of Romans to understand that. How in the world is God going to set us free? How is God going to honor us? How will God satisfy fallen creatures like us? How will God show and demonstrate, means to physically see, how will he show us our salvation? The reason in verse 14 is because we love him. Because he holds fast to me in love, God says, of those who trust him. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 18, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Or Romans 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit dwells in you. Or Romans 8, 23 to 24. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly await for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For this is the hope, for in this hope we were saved. Verse 24. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes in what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. The entire psalm has been talking about God's dwelling place being our house, our residence. The only way that we can be part of God's family, beloved, the only way. Because remember, we are sinners by choice. We're sinners by nature. We are under the rightful condemnation of God's wrath. The only way that can change is if someone dies in our place. And guess what? God, the Father, sent the Son to die on the cross to demonstrate God's perfect righteousness and to accomplish everything necessary for our salvation. The Bible says he died once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. To, to, to do what? To transfer us from the domain of darkness into the glorious kingdom of his Son. So that verses like Psalm 90, verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, can be true for us. Or Psalm 91, verse 1, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Or Psalm 92, verse 13, They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of God. How is this possible? It has to happen through Jesus. Jesus is the way to God. And when you have God as your refuge, when you have God as your strength and your fortress and your security, all of his promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We can dwell under the shadow of the mighty, almighty. You've ever heard of Elizabeth Elliot? It was her husband who was a martyred missionary down in Ecuador, Jim Elliot, and she wrote a, a book about his life, and she, she called it Under the Shadow of the Almighty. And if you know anything about that book, it was one of his favorite psalms, Psalm 91. When they landed their little plane there, as these young <laughs> college kids, four of them, they thought, wow, we're going to serve the Lord. We committed our lives. We'll go down there and landed on a beach. The natives came out of the jungle and hacked them dead. All four of them. How is that being under the shadow of the Almighty? See, that only makes sense if the resurrection makes sense. That's the only way that our lives are hidden in Christ. No matter what happens to us, if we're trusting in God, if we'll dwell in the shadow of the Almighty, He will set us free and He will honor us. He will satisfy us, and it says He will show us His salvation. Father, we thank You for this psalm. We thank You for Your protection, Your care, your wondrous grace that you provided through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You've shown us your salvation by sending your Son, Jesus Christ. I, I just pray this morning, if you have not, if you do not have that kind of relationship with God, 
If you don't know God as your safe harbor, your strength, your refuge, if you live in fear, I want you to know today that you can make God your refuge. You can make God your stronghold today. You can trust him. And the only reason that's true is because Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the grave and he defeated death. And when you put your faith in him, you're saved. God can transform you into one who trusts in him. I plead with you this morning, if you don't know Christ today, that you would cry out to him. Even now, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Make me your child. If you desire to speak with someone after you've heard this message this morning or want to reach out, please do. Make sure as you walk out this door this morning that God is your shelter. He's your stronghold. And it's because of the mercy of Christ, because of his atoning death, that you can be in that perfect place of protection. Father, we thank you for the promises that you have given us, that you watch over us. Nothing can harm us, but all of it is used for our good and your glory, good and bad. Teach us how to grow in your son's likeness each and every day in our afflictions, confident that we are sheltered as your true children. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen.